Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, I am Sana Amir, uh, Multimedia Editor of Himal South Asia. I'm joined by Alok Adhikari, uh, Assistant Director of Film South Asia. And of course, Kisan Chetan, uh, Director of Hamitana Komanche. Uh, before we start, I would like our editor, Roman Gautam, to give a brief introduction about our Green South Asia event. Over to you, Roman. Thank you so much, Sana. Um, I know that we are keeping things very brief today, um, and I'm going to stay in that spirit as well. I want to start by saying, Thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. It's so, I mean, we're so excited to get Film South Asia, or sorry, Screen South Asia um, rolling and to be working with Film South Asia. So thank you to Alok as well. Um, I am really, like everyone else who's joining here today, um, of uh, well, one, a fan of Kesang Tsetsen. I've watched all of his films until this one. I think this was the last one on my list, so I'm glad that I got to watch this one too. So I am also just a viewer and um, someone who's here to learn and to be part of this wonderful thing. Um, want to say a big, big thank you to Film South Asia, Alok Mitu, I think who's not here, but has been there behind the scenes. Sana, who's done all the hard work on our side. Um, and the Himal team behind the scenes putting um, together just this um, online event. Thank you so much, guys. Kesangzi, thank you so much once again. I'll um, hand it right back over to you guys. Sana, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Roman. Um, I will quickly give a introduction to of Kesang Chetan, who in many ways needs no introductions. Um, Kesang Chetan is a Nepali documentary filmmaker whose films have been screened regularly in international film festivals around the world. And in this time, in the last two decades that this has happened, he has also regularly screened with us at Film Salvation. And his films are one of some of those films that are like really cherished uh, by the Nepali audience and the audience that physically attends Film Salvation every other year. Uh, Kesang has won multiple awards for his uh, films and they have gone to major festivals around the world. His film, award-winning film, uh, Who Will Be a Gurkha, was selected for ITFA's feature-length competition, Edat al-Zazira, enjoyed theater release in Nepal as well. Uh, and the film uh, follows uh, migrant workers in the Gulf uh, states, um, really gives the audience a look into um, the realities of migrant workers. And this is something Kisang has worked a lot on, something we'll talk a little bit about later on. Uh, he has won many grants from Busan and uh, ITFA and Sundance as well. Uh, today's film, Hamikunako Manti, was made in 2006 uh, and screened at FSC in 2007. And it is, again, one of the most beloved documentary, Nepali documentary films in the last two decades, in my opinion. So we are so happy to have Kisang with us today. Uh, thank you. Thank you one again, Kesang, once again, Kesang. I will pass over to Sana to start with her questions. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is an open session. Uh, so if in the, the bottom of your Zoom, you would see a reactions icon. And uh, you can anytime raise your hand. We will pass on the mic to you. Uh, we want it to be interactive and we will obviously like have our questions, but please like feel free to raise your hand and we will pass on the mic. Uh, other than this, you can also put your questions on Zoom chat. Uh, we are also live on Facebook, so you can put in your, your questions there and uh, of course like DM us on Twitter as well. Uh, so we'll start with the first question, Kesan, like what inspired you to make this film and how did you find this uh, village? Thank you to everybody for organizing this and all the kind words. 
uh, actually, like a lot of my films, uh, they don't have a very dramatic, uh, you know, provenance. Uh, I was asked to make a film about a bridge uh, by Helvetas, and I thought, okay, it's an NGO assignment. Uh, they've built 3,000 bridges. You know, what's interesting? Because like journalists, I think a documentary filmmaker is always looking for a subject that before you start, it stands out in some way. You know, there's something dramatic about it. It's the tallest, it's the, uh, you know, uh, craziest or whatever. But there was nothing about this uh, this place that uh, these kind of uh, usual uh, attributes. So I, I dragged my feet on this and uh, finally I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, it's a job. We, we, we are not artists. We, we, you know, we make films as a, as a, for a livelihood. Uh, that's a raison d'etre, right? So I finally agreed to go to this village. Uh, I didn't choose the village. Whatever they said, you know, uh, their bridge, the way the bridge is built is uh, follows a certain set format. Uh, when the community has a meeting, then the money, you know, it's just like five clear stages. So this was on at that time. It was during the, uh, the you know, conflict times. So it was difficult to travel. And so with, you know, such apprehensions, like, is this, is this material going to yield a film? What kind of, there's a bridge going to be built at 3,001st, uh, what to say about it? So with those apprehensions I went in, so that was the beginning of the film. And then uh, 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 as reality would have it, it just turned out to be always much more interesting, even in the most commonplace, ordinary situation. That's what reality yields potentially. So that's really the beginning of that. That's uh, that's wonderful. That I don't know. I feel like that possibly also leads to our next question, which is something I've perhaps even asked you before, and something I think a lot about whenever I see your films. Uh, I grew up watching your documentaries, and uh, you know something that's always struck me is the connection you make with your subject, your characters, whatever you want to call these people who are part of your films. And this is true for In Search of Real, where you know you follow these guys, and even made a film ten years later is called The Realist, where you know, and they are, you know, I feel like it feels like at least as an audience member, you have this wonderful relationship relationship with these guys. Uh, who you've made these uh, films about. But going back to Anukunakamante, this is also true for this. One villages you visited maybe, I don't know, I, like many, many times, five, six, ten times over a period, a certain period of time. But how how do you gain people, uh, you're the villagers in many ways, to trust you? And how do you, in many ways, you know, get people to open up to the camera? What is, uh, yeah, that's that's my question. It's a it's a difficult to answer that because uh, <clears throat> I don't think I have any special charm or technique. I think it's uh, you know most of all the approach is really to understand that the story is going to come from there, right? That's the beginning, and uh, it's like the proverbial person sitting by you in a bus. Once you start a conversation. Lo and behold, a story unfolds 99% of the time, you know? It's really that, I think. And then, of course, you do use a certain kind of uh, approaches, like I never tell people, can you do this again? Can you hold your teacup and uh, make the tea for me? Can you walk over this way? I try not to do that because, and I've seen that 
A lot of documentary filmmakers in Nepal and other places do that. And it's a serious mistake because this, this aura, this uh, reaction that uh, of the villagers, the response to you that you're talking about, it comes from somewhere. And if you cue in, if you give them the wrong cues, then they begin to try to, you know, be accommodating to you or answer, they try to second guess what you want. And what you want to do is avoid that, you know? Like we, we often want people in documentary films to be natural. And the, the last thing you should tell your subjects is be natural because then you're telling them to act, to act and be natural, right? So you have to think about ways of not to do that, that you're not giving cues, that you're at one level, you're leveling with them on a, the stage of reality. They are who they are, never get them to do that again, sit here, sit there, because you sometimes break the rule. You know, if you know somebody really well, you might say, would you mind coming in the sunlight so that we can see you, you know? But uh, I think that approach is very, very important, you know? How you approach them, they're gonna to respond to you in that same way. So they're gonna be thinking, shall I, you know, I wanna please them, I please the filmmaker or say what he wants to hear. So to avoid that, your approach should not be, you know, the things that I mentioned. That's really important, I think. Oh, thank you, Sang. And that like leads to my next next question because in Hamikunako Manche, like the mode of filmmaking is more observational, you know, and sort of like one could categorize it into direct cinema. So I mean, is that like, do you select your mode of filmmaking before you go on uh, to shoot or is it something that you decide on the edit table? So how do you make that decision? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I never went to film school. Yeah. So uh, in fact, it was only with uh, Gurkha that I began sort of really consciously adopting an observational mode. So that means my natural reaction is to kind of see, you know, what, what can be yielded from the situation. But having said that, in this film, generally the, the kind of distinction is observational, where there's no interviews and interviews, right? So this one has a lot of interviews. So I'm not sure it's observational, but maybe it has a quality of that, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, uh, I think in terms of the observational, it's, uh, you know, it's the belief that uh, what people do, and it doesn't mean only physical action, but what they say embedded in their situation is much more interesting than to ask someone, what do you, you know, how to represent themselves. So if you ask someone, what do you think is going on in your village? That's asking them to represent, you know, give a presentation of what they think of. So whereas if you were to do kind of a, let's say observational approach, it's seeing them interact with others. It's seeing them have conflicts. It's seeing them plan, do the most ordinary things. But that, that difference is really significant because it suddenly, you know, the viewer feels that in a different kind of a reality, that you're closer to the reality in a way. So the, the, I think there's a place for interviews. I mean, the greatest film, films also have interviews. But uh, you have to, you know, sometimes information from a person is like a shortcut and is, is not really that interesting than seeing 
how people are you know interacting in there it's it's much it's showing showing over telling i mean you know when you interview someone basically you're asking them to tell but as i said there are there are times when you want the person to sit down and talk to you when we sit down with people you don't just observe them you want to talk to them also so you have to really you know uh, kind of see when to be quiet and listen when to perhaps take a certain approach that instigates a certain kind of action because obviously you're not going to stay there for one month right or two months you, you want things to happen i mean this is a necessary part of life that you the experience is a part of life you're not going to wait forever right so so you have to kind of play around with the mix of being patient as well as it's not quite manipulating but it's it's you know uh, with some intentionality we need that i think um thank you thank you kesa related to that in some ways you know how how these things come out how these particular topics come out the film touches on a lot of issues that this small village faces and we were wondering about you know what the edit process for this film was like uh back in 2006 when you know you probably this is a guess you came back to Kathmandu with all this footage and then maybe found all the stories in there but yeah the what you know what exactly because the documentary touches on everything from poverty to religion how did the uh, edit, edit process go and how did you choose the topics to focus on okay the editing process just follows is a response to the material to the reality encountered right so i go on my first visit thinking okay i'm going to make a film about a beginning of a trail bridge being built uh, i'm going to ask them what does a trail bridge do for you to the villagers what benefits you know the pro forma things right so you're going just with that and you're thinking hmm this is not so exciting but that's what you do right in that first meeting when i asked that question somebody said oh this is where a little girl was swept away by the river okay i, I didn't quite hear that second time somebody mentions that something told me oh here's a story here's something that is interesting to follow because if you let's say your assignment your commission your your objective is to go and make a film about the building of the bridge if you go and just literally just do that you know it's it's i mean you're just filming what is you can almost uh, on paper predict without going there right but it's it's what happens in that real situation that is interesting so when i heard the second time somebody repeating the girl was carried away i followed the thread and then i hear i had no idea that half the village three quarters of the village were had converted to christianity so then i'm thinking okay they were christians i go back home and i say but i'm making a bridge a film about a bridge then i think yeah but who said i have to make a film about the bridge you know so it's it's like it's a kind of a strange situation where you're making a film about migration or bridge but what is the reality that's coming back to you surely that if that is like if everybody's saying they're christians that's a big thing happening in the village how can you ignore it so all you're doing is really responding to the material you know it's not like i had 101 uh, interesting findings and then i think which one should i select to edit it's actually the reality coming back to you and saying this is what most people are talking about this is their concerns 
this is what's on their mind, and therefore you're responding to the material. So the, the girl who got carried away leads me to the guy whose wife she was, to the relative, uh, you know, who, who uh, to the girl who was at the river when the person was, the other girl was swept away, etc. So you're just following the leads provided by the material, you know. It's very little created by yourself, actually. You're only responding to situations. Uh, thank so you, so when you sit down to edit, you say, oh, this is interesting, yeah. Christianity. Mm, well, it's got to do a little with the poverty in a way, because in a sense, you know, you respond to empirically to the direct situation, but you think, and you think, uh, ah, this is a village that's so poor, uh, bereft of amenities, uh, facilities, uh, crops, but subjected to all kinds of forces from outside, including social and cultural catastrophe, nature, rivers over flooding, flash floods. So suddenly you get the sense of that, right? So that sense, that kind of uh, conception that you have then informs your edit. Like this is what it's about, you know, right? So it's a dialectic it's between the material, your experience, uh, the encountering with this reality, the various elements in that reality. So your edit is just following that, you're responding to that, being sensitive to that. Uh, thank you, Kisang. Uh, I mean, you were you were referencing to the section of the documentary where they talk about religion, and uh, in uh, in one of the interviews I was reading about you, it also mentions that they reverted. Uh, after I think some years. So yes. uh, could you tell yeah, the significance of this section of the film? So, so when I show the film in the hall, I remember uh, some people got up and said, you know, what's all this about Christianity? You keep putting this in the film. And I said, I didn't put it in the film. This is the reality that this sort of I collided with, right? So if something is really significant, why would I miss it out? I have no agenda, you know? On the other, this was more Nepali audience, right, who was reacting. On the other hand, there were ex, expatriate, you know, uh, Western uh, uh, people, viewers, who said, wow, this is really serious. I mean, Christianity is getting to all the villages and converting our traditional culture, subverting our traditional culture. You know, we've got to do something. And I thought, I'm a filmmaker, you know, I, like, it's anybody's, you know, it's everyone's own right to be a Christian or not a Christian. I don't really care in that sense, you know. Uh, my job is to illuminate the reality and tell the story about the village. So on both sides, there were fears, which it turned out to be 12 years later unneeded, because as it turned out, 12 years later when I went back, and this is the film that I'm going to make, they're all, you know, when I went there, we corner people, maybe 90% were Christians, I think, right? 90% or 85%. When I went back, there were just two or three households that were Christian. Everybody else had reconverted to. Now, here's the complex thing. <laughs> There's no simple village. Every simple village has such complexities. Because what were they, you know, reverting to? So they say Buddhism, but there's hardly any signs of Buddhism there. You know, they, their actual practice is more shamanistic, you know, uh, sacrifices and things like Jankri, like Balawani, you know. So in the film, they say that 
to be a Christian was much better because we didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to pay. We didn't have to. It cost far less to be a Christian, right? And 12 years later, they said, now we have medical facilities. Uh, hydropower has changed our lives. There's roads. We have jobs. We come, we've become richer. We have schools. So why do we need Christianity? So, so all along, it seems these people knew what they were doing. You know, so there was no, you know, there's no need for anyone to be patronizing in either direction. You know, why are they all becoming Christians uh, from the Nepalis who are maybe sensitive to this and from expats who are also sensitive in their own way, like our people, our white people, our converting people. As it happened, it wasn't Westerners, it was uh, Korean uh, Christian, you know, branches and so forth. You know? So I think the lesson from this, from my point of view, is that actually people sort of know what they're doing in a way, you know, uh, in terms of their needs. There's no greater, it's not about greater, you know, one place having a greater uh, source to knowledge. People sort of know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Kisan. Uh, I'm going to play a clip from the film uh, and we'll ask a, a related question. Uh, yeah, uh, just a second. धेरै धेरै समझना छु बुआ आमा साथै हजुर दिदी सबैले माया छ के गर्नु मेरो मालिक नि र मालिकले फोन गर्न पैसा दिए किन पैसा दिनु भएन पीर सारै पीर लाग्छ र पनि पनि एउटा पीरले गरेर मात्र कुबेत आए के गर्नु कस्तो लाग्छ फोन गर्नु पैसा Pani Paisa Pani Afai Lino Kina Pordo Bordo Raisa My Leta Madam Lai Sabai Paisa Dinu Tigat Kineku Paisa Tha Su Sabai Jati Abasik Maghar Tsar Maina Ku Paisa Patanchu Paisa Dinu Pago Tiena Amaku Yat Kati Aunsa Ki Garnu Garib Hunu Pani Egdamai Thank you, Sana. <clears throat> I, I, every time I've seen this film, that part really strikes me. And Pushpa Kumarji's reaction to, to reading that letter really strikes me. And I was curious, knowing he's probably this man from Helvetas who goes around and travels, has traveled to a lot of villages to help build bridges. Uh, so I was curious about, you know, what his relationship, you know, we asked you about your relationship with the villagers and these people, but what his relationship to this village was like from your point of view? Oh, I think he, uh, Pushpa was very charismatic. And uh, uh, he personally, in terms of his personality, he was charismatic, but he's also in a charismatic role because he's in the role of the, he's the front man of the benefactor, you know, coming into, uh, deliver the goods, uh, building of the bridge. So uh, I thought he was really, uh, I mean, exp very experienced. He knew how to deal with villagers. Uh, very capable. I mean, I think the interesting thing when I look back now, seeing this footage and all that, uh, you know, I, I think it's really, you know, what is interesting for me in making documentaries is really looking at ordinary situations, you know? 
and 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 discovering that they're not that ordinary when you unravel them or illuminate them uh it's it's full of complexity and different multiple strands and whatnot and of course the craft of filmmaking is to try and make them dine together so that it makes a kind of a form a unity but that is most interesting because the other way of doing films which if i had the chance i mean i, I would like to go to a village that uh, where a trail bridge is being built at six thousand meters or, you know i'd like to do that but often that doesn't come so you'll be waiting for a situation where as an inherent uh, exceptional kind of uh, uh, qualities about it right but most times you are faced with it you know with the ordinary situation and then it becomes actually very interesting to look at ordinary situations and see that they're anything but ordinary Yeah, uh, thanks, Kisang. Uh, so we have a question from yep. Sunviti Basnet. Okay. And uh, she asks, how many trips did Kisang sir make and or was it filmed in one go? We probably went five times. And, uh, and we followed the kind of uh, schedule of the bridge building kind of method, you know. Uh, there's one where they had the community meeting, second when they delivered the goods, the material goods for the bridge, and then there's the building, and then there's the pulling of the cable, and then there's the end. So we pretty much followed that uh, process, you know. So each time we went, we probably stayed two nights, three nights, maybe three nights or something. It wasn't like long waiting. You know, you have to think that sometimes filmmakers uh, take pride in saying that they, you know, stayed three months in a place and sometimes you need to do that but sometimes i mean here's this fragile little village and 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 you know a team of three or four people with the equipment is a big toll on a little village you know the belt not not in terms of taking away the resources but the balance of your presence vis-a-vis -vis their reality there's something about that you know i think uh, i tend to pay attention to things like that and there's no need to really because, you know, forget it. You're not really getting to the absolute essence of the village. You know, let's forget that. We're not going to go and delve and come back with the innermost. You know, you're getting a sociological portrait. A portrait that is, is you know, the, the saying that essence and surface is really essentially no different. You know, you can find things in the surface rather than only in the essence, you know. Uh, so this dichotomy is a bit false in a way. Especially in a medium like film, where you it's all tactile, you're filming something, yeah, you're filming action. Who's to say that the person that you meet your in your tenth time is you know more true than the first time that you meet them? You know, so it's it's a funny way these things work. I mean. uh, you have to judge. I mean that the shortest yeah. cut is the best, but sometimes you know I meet you. And have coffee, and maybe I get much more out of that than, than you know, I meet you for coffee five times, and on the sixth time, then I ask you some questions. It's debatable how you know how interactions happen, what interactions yield in terms of meaning, right? So. Uh, on your website, it mentions that you know one of your current projects is also a revisit to the site of Hamikuna Komanche. Yes. So how was it like going to the village after like a gap of some years and how did the villagers and people react to it and how much 
has changed really? Yeah, quite a lot had changed. I mean, I, I went there because I heard that the village had transformed because the hydropower uh, plant had come, a road had been built, they had jobs, they were richer. So I thought it makes sense to go back and see. So went back and, uh, and indeed found those changes. But of course, you know, everybody doesn't suddenly transform and become rich. You know, some people get a little more, some people get less, some people get jobs, other people don't get jobs. But it had transformed in many other ways, which was, it was no more a place in the corner, you know. Suddenly it was brought into, you know, the orbit of the kind of world that we inhabit in some way, right? And uh, people were making trips to Kathmandu, people were traveling out for jobs. Uh, but the, the, the striking thing was that Jankri system still existed. Uh, everybody had, you know, had uh, reverted from Christianity, reverted from Christianity, but what is an open question because there still was no, you know, like, what does it mean to say the village went back to being Buddhist? Well, you don't see any signs of that, but they had left Christian. And, and as, they said, as they said, because they don't really uh, need to be Christian anymore. <laughs> so it's, a, it's really interesting in that sense. Uh, some people have died. Uh, and in other ways, people were, you know, the, some people were a bit disgruntled because they had, they had sold their land to the hydropower and then shifted up to little houses that were in the shade. It's very important how in a village where you're located in terms of the sun is very, you know, it defines your life, right? Your reality. So they're saying, you know, <laughs> And uh, why did we give a uh, land away and so forth? So they, there's always a bit of uh, disenchantment also. Uh, and then some people don't get jobs, so they feel, mm, you know, we, we didn't really get anything out of it. But this is kind of normal to be expected. Yeah? So I, I would like to, I heard that uh, the lights are coming on finally, like in a couple of months. So I'm going to go back there and see the lights come on. And then uh, I'd like to make that film. We've shot, we've gone back about four times already. In 2019, 18 and 19. So this is like, it would be 15 years later. That's, that's very exciting. We are already excited about that documentary. Uh, there's actually, there are quite a few questions coming in from the audience. So I'm going to ask you a couple. Uh, one quick one is, Kesanji, when can we hope to see the new film Revisiting the Village? Uh, uh, which film? This, this the, film? No, the, the, the one you're working on. Yeah, I, I, I'm not working on it right now. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'd like to get it done by the end of this year. Okay, wow. Okay, cool. uh, another one is uh, more about marketing, a marketing distributing question. When documentary buyers uh, from various parts of the world look at our corner stories, in your experience, what are they looking for? Is there a variation in the interest? Do buyers in the West respond differently than Asian buyers? Uh, this is a tough question because uh, I, I don't think I'm a, <laughs> the best example of successful marketing. Uh, it's very hard. It's very hard because the slots available uh, for documentaries, even if you were in the West, is very limited, right? Versus the productions. 
And for us, it's doubly or triply difficult because, you know, there's a, like we are living in a globalized world and so forth, but how a, a film travels is definitely an open question. You know, how a film is viewed back home versus in India, versus in Singapore, versus in Amsterdam is very different. And I think, uh, this is just my speculation, I think most times, I mean, it's not a problem, but maybe insiders make film, we're not really total insiders, I'm not from the village either, right? So nobody's really totally insider, but there are, you know, degrees of being outsider. Uh, I think generally for a Western market, you, the films have to be a little more kind of accessible. If it gets into too many labyrinthine pathways, it's very difficult. It's, it gets just too complex, right? Because you may have a very sophisticated viewer. It could be a, a sophisticated audience that it for whatever. But, you know, it's not about their intelligence or their, their you know, uh, their the expertise, sophistication looking at films, but they're looking at something which is a strange reality. So it needs to be deep and yet the story needs to resonate. But if it's too local, you know, they might see it as, hmm, it's a bit hard to access. So that's the really tricky head. And uh, uh, the important thing is the filmmaker has to, you know, uh, Kind of come to grips with this, and and and, I mean, for me personally, I think you have to make the film that you, the film that you make should be your response to your material, and not trying to second guess what will Sundance like, what will it feel like, what will uh, TV in Australia like, you know, because then you're neither here nor there. You know? uh, so, like you know, if you write a novel, you're not a poem. You're not going to say now which audience is going to like this and that. You this this you have to use every resource in yourself to respond to your material, right? That itself is a difficult challenge. It's a challenge. So second guessing is is a problem. I mean, of course, after you make it, and of course there are certain things. This is a very local phrase. Let's change that. Of course, those are more secondary, right? Of a more external nature that you. You adapt because you recognize that someone might not understand. But in the main, you can only, you know, I, I think there's a primary audience, and then there are things in the film that might work for some other audience. It can't be the same thing to everybody. And sometimes it's a matter of subject. Like Gurkha was, because in the same frame, there was Nepalese and the British employer and employee. So, in a way, the premise itself opened up to a more kind of a wider uh, scape, right? But uh, sorry. Uh, we have a question from yeah. Shashank. Uh, so he's asking, how did you decide on ending of the film? Uh, was it in your mind that it will end with the bridge build or was it something that was found on the edit? Oh, I think, you know, it, it's kind of, I mean, almost anybody in my position would have put the completed bridge <laughs> at the end because the bridge is sort of the kind of overt narrative, right? The building of the bridge while the story unfolds. So therefore you show the end and the bridge completed, realized, materialized, right? And, uh, but I also put like, you know, people dancing and singing 
Now, you know, sometimes in the serious documentary, people don't like to put something like that. But I thought, you know, they, they're celebrating. So be it, you know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? The tension between yeah. like trying to show something happy or not happy, but you just have to go with your, you know, your sense of your response to your material. And for me, the villagers are dancing, they're dancing. You know, it's, it's, I, I don't need to uh, put a different gloss, like it's kind of dark or they have misgivings. So that's what I saw, so I put it in. But the issues, the conflicts that remain, hopefully, you know, people understand, have, haven't gone, been erased by the building of a bridge, right? There's a sadness that they went through, the death of a, a young girl that touched so many eyes. So this is the kind of balancing act, which is really, uh, it really emanates from your own sensibility, I guess, you know, your, your sense of how to uh, kind of be fair to a story, to a reality in how you represent it, you know. Uh, since you were talking about the sound and music that you have used in the film, and so can you tell us a bit more about musical traditions that you encountered while making the film and how you recorded and picked the music? Well, the the the, the guy playing the you know what's it called? Jamne is the Tibetan word, the Tunga, I think. I mean, that was beautiful. I thought you know so, and and he was there. He was the husband the girl who got swept away. And later in the edit, I heard the words, which is, you know, a life in the corner of, oh, it just was so touching. Uh, so I think I got some, someone, I found someone in Boda who played this instrument that I could play in the credits maybe. But otherwise the sounds were, uh, and through the film maybe, but a lot of the sound was from the guy himself playing that instrument in front of his house on the steps. You know? And and the, in the film that's going to come, you know, okay, there we stated it. We said, can you play this? And he sat on the same steps and played this tune. It, it's really, there's something about time that you can't substitute, you know? 15 years later, it's like looking at the old photographs and saying, ah, oh, there I was when I was 11, uh, whatever. You know? uh, that's universal, I think. The, the stirrings of nostalgia, memory, uh, what time does is, is really fascinating and you're lucky to have that element in your film. Um, we promised you a hard out at seven, so we're, I'm gonna, we're gonna end up, uh, end very quickly now. Uh, one question that I wanted to ask you yeah. was about, so you've been making films for such a long time at this point, and you know, you have been that person behind the camera for or, you know, the, with the person behind the camera for a very long time. But in this period as well, like films have changed, phones have changed, cameras changed, and people's relationship to these things have changed, I think, quite a bit. So how do you feel, if at all, you know, the cameras in particular, everybody having cameras on their phones, everybody being able to look at themselves, think about how they look on camera, how do you think that has changed, if at all, documentary filmmaking or your approach to it? Well, it depends who you're filming or where you're filming. So if you're filming somebody in New York, it's very different from also in New York. It depends on who it is. Like I've made a film now on uh, the Himalayan community in 
Queens, Jackson Heights, Queens. And there they're not fundamentally different from the people in, in this village. You know, not fundamentally. They, they've seen a camera, but they say it's okay. They don't really understand the process. A lot of people who watch movies are, don't know the process also. You know? So there's, a, there's a, quite a variance of reactions from people who know media. Uh, but of course, if you are filming uh, people in a totally uh, very self-conscious and knowledgeable about media kind of a situation, people tend to mimic what they've heard on TV and you know, man on the street interviews and you know, people often answer in certain ways. But even then, I think underneath, you know, uh, there's always meaning coming out, right? It's all, you know, people communicate, we use the same language, but beneath that, you are trying to convey some meaning. So then it's a matter of how you, how much time you give it, how do you try and capture those things that invariably and naturally are conveyed, communicated by people. Does that kind of? No, it, it, it does, it does. And you know, it's sort of so what I sort of expected as well, but something I was curious about to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Pragati. Uh, so she says, we have spoken about the many themes and explorations in the documentary, religion, grief, poverty, development, even language and education to some extent. Uh, you said these were the realities you were being faced with every day. Do you remember anything that stayed with you or affected you to a large degree? No, I think, I mean, you know, the personal and the filmmaker is kind of merged, right? So, you know, what, I, what stays with me is the form of the film, really. Uh, because what happens is, okay, you don't generate the reality, you encounter the reality, then you work with the reality to create a form, right? And that's where you sort of have a, your hand in, in selecting and shaping the material. And I think, uh, you know, that's what kind of, is your sentimental memory of, of, uh, of, of that reality. It kind of comes to represent that. Uh, it becomes something objective, really. Uh, I'm not sure that's a good answer, but uh, I can't think of, uh, I mean, I think the startlingly, in start, startlingly, you know, how much in a corner they were is what really strikes me. To, to, to think of, of, to encounter a reality where people don't even have a, a, a form of livelihood. You know, they really didn't have, like, I want to work, where do I go to work? They didn't have that. And, and, and they're, they're, the way they spoke and they, the way they talked about their situation, the way they look, talked about something outside their situation came from that kind of a very, Unakomanchiku reality. So, um, uh, so we'll, uh, one last audience question as well. Uh, this final one, and this is something I've wondered about as well. This yeah. from Sviti Basnet again. How was Helvetas involved throughout? Did, the, did they fund the film? Did they demand a different cut of the film? Yeah. So, as I said in the beginning, I don't know if Sviti heard it, but they asked me to make a film. I took one year to decide to do it spoiled as I was, <laughs> thinking, ah, what kind of film can I make of it? And then because it was a commission film, and what am I going to do? It's like, I have so many constraints. 
But as it turned out, when I showed the first cut, the Helvetas uh, office people, there were a few people there who didn't like it. They said, oh, you're showing somebody brushing his teeth. It doesn't look good. You're showing a bit of uh, this and that, you know, not the totally smooth kind of relationship of the uh, Helvetas partnership with the local. So they were raising a few voices like that, a few people. But at the same time, the film somehow got to uh, headquarters, SDC in Bern, and the reaction was very strong. They, they, they liked it as a film. So when the word went back to Helvetas, they, they did not uh, want me to make any changes. Uh, and I, I actually said, you know, the guy is brushing his teeth, so like, what's the big deal, you know? So uh, that's the kind of challenge you face when you take, when you make a film for, which is funded by somebody. The, the inherent challenge is that people want their point of view. But you have to, as a filmmaker, try and subvert that you know, and say, look, it's in your interest to have a film that makes sense to a lot of people, that people watch it, watch for reasons of interest rather than about a help it as program. So you have to, you know, it falls on you to try and convince them. And uh, otherwise making a film, of course, if you need a job and you need money and you need to do a PR film, do it by all means. There's no sin against that. But you're not going to make a film that you want. It's not going to be a genuine response to the material, you know? Uh, uh, so uh, coming to our last question, uh, what, according to you, uh, do you think is the main key takeaway sort of from the documentary, Hamikuna Kumanche? From, from this film? Yeah, yeah. I think it's to listen. Uh, I don't mean just be polite and listen. I mean, listen for, you know, be focused on the situation. And you could bring your understanding and your sensibility to, to bear, to, to actually hear that, you know. So if I had not heard that person saying a girl was taken away, maybe by, by my third visit, I would have uh, got that, you know. But right from the first, I got that and immediately thought, here's a, like, here we are going into a village far away that, None of us have any interest in or relationship to, right? A bridge is being built. It's 3,000 have been built. So, you know, you're looking for something. You're looking for particulars, looking for strands that, you know, uh, that resonate somehow, that, that are poignant, that, that stand above the predictable. So you have to go with that approach. And invariably, you will find something. Because, you know, human beings are, we're all human beings, the villagers as well as us. You definitely are going to find something interesting. Okay, it's not going to be the most dramatic thing in the usual sense of the word, but. Thank you, Kisang. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we would we will end our session with that question uh, because Kisang has some work after seven. And uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, and uh, so. Yeah, so Screen South Asia, we will basically, the plan is to screen documentaries first weekend every month. So we will be back in May with a new documentary. And yeah, Roman, you want to say something? Yes, I wanted to just say another thank you to first our wonderful hosts um, and to our wonderful audience to say thank you for being here for the first edition. Like Sana was saying, we will have more coming. Please join us for those. 
Um, but also the biggest thank you of the day, of course, um, to, to Kesangzi. And just wanted to say, I mean, personally, I'm so excited about this new film, the fact that you're going back. One way I was thinking about the film is that, you know, when they say, Hami kuna say on the global scale, Nepal as a whole is a kuna as well. So, <laughs> And and I mean that's not to that's not to deny any of the hierarchies that exist within I, 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 Nepal. Of course, they are kunakomanse, and that means a lot. Um, but in a way, Nepal has changed so much. This place has changed so much. In a way, you can read this village maybe in some ways as a a kuna within a kuna, and to see how our kuna has changed, it'll be so exciting to see <laughs> that you produce. Um, so I just wanted to say, when the time is right, I hope you have a wonderful experience making the film, and when the time is right, that you will um, let us share the joy of watching it here at Screen South Asia as well. So please, um, everybody, wherever you are in the world, silently on Zoom, please put your hands together for Kesang. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, yes. Kesangzi, would you want to say anything? In oh, no, I in? really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Very well. And uh, says it uh, went uh, very well. <laughs> He's been prompting me, actually. And, Your friend is here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.